0: You're holding a screwdriver in your hands. And if you unscrew that device, a phone, a tablet to fix it, are you potentially opening up a can of worms? Yes, this week on Download This Show, should you have the right to repair your technology? Plus, what did Sky News do to get bumped off YouTube? Why is one of the biggest movie stars on Earth suing over Disney Plus? And... Which Aussie tech startup just got bought by the founder of Twitter? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Vanell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download the Show. Our guest this week from Biteside.com, Seamus Byrne, welcome back. Hello, good to be here. And uh, analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Ariel Bogle. It's been far too long. Welcome back.
1: Hi, thanks for having me again.
0: The pleasure is entirely mine. Okay, well, I'm going to start off with (gasps) Sky News. Why is it that Sky News has been pulled off YouTube, Seamus?
2: So... We know that the whole Sky News Australia After Dark realm has become quite notorious for the kinds of commentary that it throws around, and in a lot of respects, that has become this interesting play for Sky News Australia on YouTube. So, as much as that is going out there to the uh, you know, subscription television broadcast audience, and now to a sort of regional Australia audience via broadcast. These kinds of videos have been packaged up and pushed out to the whole world through the Sky News Australia YouTube channel. It's had now like one of the biggest YouTube channels of any Australian broadcaster by appealing to that certain kind of audience. And after a whole bunch of misinformation related to the pandemic and the coronavirus and vaccines, YouTube has decided that actually, you know what, this is too much. They have repeatedly gone against YouTube's rules and so it has been given a seven-day timeout, sin bin, if you will, uh, and been told to, yeah,
0: (laughs) stop doing that. I like it. So (laughs) do we know exactly what videos cause concern, Ariel?
1: No, we don't. This is an issue both with YouTube's transparency around how it applies its disinformation policies writ large. In general, they're not very clear about exactly which videos from a channel broke its rules. I mean, people are trying to kind of reverse engineer, trying to figure out which videos on the Sky News Australia YouTube channel are no longer there and sort of (laughs) wheedle it out that way. But both Sky and Google so far have not been exactly forthcoming about the specificity of which videos cross the line. Right, so this is a point that I,
0: I kind of get caught up on, right, because if the whole point is that they're in trouble because of sharing things that are, well, could be classified as misinformation, let's be diplomatic about it, then is there not, like, some responsibility for both YouTube and Sky to, like, correct the things that YouTube has decided are, are misinformation and saying, hey, this thing that we put out, maybe not true, right? That that seems like a reasonable thing to do, right, Ariel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. (laughs) I don't know if they agree. Uh, So far, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, I guess, a really interesting step up in moderation on on YouTube, but also, say, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well. Because the pandemic and health advice is, is kind of a clearer line compared to, say, political misinformation, the platforms have really been uh, more overt, more uh, quicker, I suppose, to remove content that, in in their view, uh, poses a risk to public health, could cause somebody to do something risky to their health. For example, taking hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, if I'm saying that right, against (laughs) the advice of doctors against COVID, both medications that have been discussed on Sky News Australia. So certainly a lot more transparency, would be really welcome. So I think this kind of incident raises a lot of questions about YouTube's transparency, but also about the appropriateness and the strength of Australia's own domestic regulatory regime.
2: YouTube, since the early stages of the pandemic, has been really treating COVID-19 as almost a test case of when it is something so clear that it is about health and science and it isn't just a political debate then they have felt more comfortable to both just try to remove things quickly and in the sense of correcting the record, their attitude has been to promote, you know, WHO and CDC, which is, you know, America's information body for the pandemic. So they've been more focused on that idea of saying we we will run links to other videos and other things that are from authoritative sources rather than that idea of saying, well, someone who posted A bad video needs to correct their video. And in that sense, that's the difference between, you know, something that is focused on broadcasting and the idea that a broadcaster should correct the record versus something like YouTube where it's just there to say we will remove things that we think are incorrect and we will more actively promote things that we feel have an authority behind them.
1: Is it enough, Ariel? certainly in journalistic practice, the tradition of providing corrections and explanations when news outlets get something wrong is really important. But I don't think it reaches the audience that saw the original content. So in terms of effectiveness, uh, it's kind of debatable. And so there does probably need to be a new approach to uh, providing correct information through these kind of platforms, which are an extension, I think, of our media ecosystem. I don't think YouTube should be seen as not media and not a media platform when so many news outlets exist on it, but maybe we need a slightly different approach.
0: How has Sky News reacted, Seamus? You may be
2: surprised to discover that they feel it is an imposition on their free speech and it is a blight on democracy itself. So yeah, it's a really complicated one when it comes to how they're dealing with it, but for Sky News Australia itself, their response has very much been focused on the idea that they should be not told that they can't publish things the way they want to publish them.
0: Ariel, Sky News is an unusual proposition, right, because obviously we know it as a cable news service that exists on Foxtel, relatively small sort of viewership-based, you know, comparative to, to other sort of TV networks. But there's two kind of really major things about them that, that make them stand out. Certainly their push into free-to-wear regional areas is really important, but then I guess coming back to this issue, their social media footprint, it's really important for their reach, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as um, Seamus was alluding to there, I encourage people to go to their YouTube channel and just sort by top videos and then you'll understand exactly what's going on here. I mean, by top videos, I mean the most watched videos because the top two rows or so of those top videos are just indistinguishable from a US publisher. Actually, they seem to have no stories really about Australia among those top, top videos. I mean, the top ones are about Trump in North Korea as of today, as, as of recording. There's a video there about Joe Biden's uh, quote-unquote cognitive issues, which is certainly a focus for conservative and right-leaning media in the United States. There's a video about Trump walking out of an interview. I mean, these are the top videos. And... Of course, they're of sort of purient interest maybe to Australians, but they're not of Australian news value, arguably. And so if that's its strategy targeting US audiences, as many people have documented, it does seem to be working out. And of course, as well, there are a variety of financial relationships that News Corp is in with Google. And of course, Sky News Australia is a partner in this what's called the YouTube Partner Program, which means they can earn advertising revenue off their videos. So there is a really big... uh, encouragement there to maximise views, and if they're maximising views by delving into the United States culture war, whatever topic of the day uh, is best serves that, I mean, that is a revenue strategy that YouTube has put on the table and arguably sometimes encourages the direction that Sky News Australia is taking.
0: Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Our guests this week, Ariel Bogle, Seamus Byrne, Mark Finnell is my name. And why is Scarlett Johansson suing Walt Disney, Seamus? Look, big stars want to get paid.
2: And in this case, <laughs> the star of Black Widow uh, has you know, raised one of the big issues of the moment in Hollywood, which is that a film that was uh, contracted before the pandemic began has now been released at a time when the box office is not what it used to be and has been simultaneously released on a digital platform. And that means it has a huge impact on what her final payments are because a lot of payments are attached directly to box office outcomes and not the secondary market of digital distribution. So it's a big moment. There's been lots of people arguing about this stuff, but this is probably one of the first times we're seeing someone heading to uh, the lawyers.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting moment, right? So clearly Black Widow is the end of her character's reign in the the Marvel universe. So she's sort of a bit free to kind of do this. I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to big franchise films is that usually the talent is kind of locked into these multi-year deals. She's now not, it would seem anyway. And, of course, a big reason why you get these Hollywood actors to sign on to multi-year deals is that they get a piece of the back end. They get a piece of what happens when the film gets sold on and into what was once home video now into streaming services and if you remove that theatrical window it seems that there's a lot of money that they lose. Do you think she has a case Ariel?
1: There has been some interesting commentary around this. A lot of people are quite intrigued that this is playing out in public. Typically, this might be the kind of dispute that goes straight sort of behind doors into arbitration or something like this. But as you said, maybe she feels a bit freer to take a stand because that was Black Widow was her final film in the sort of Black Widow run. And Wall Street Journal did say that the decision by Disney to put this film out on Disney+, Plus, its own streaming platform, at the same time as it released it in theatres, cost... Johansson about $50 million, which is nothing, yeah, I'd over that. <laughs> nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that was just one expert's opinion of the cost there, though. So we'll have to see if that really bears out. I mean, it's interesting Disney Plus really pushed back strongly against Scarlett Johansson and her team, sort of releasing about how much she got paid up front and making all kinds of commentary. So there's a bit of a war of words going on there right now. It was also interesting too because rarely do these streaming platforms say how much they earn from releasing films. And Disney came out saying that it got about sixty million on Disney Plus of global revenue by putting the film out on that platform. So that's an interesting little data point that we rarely get. I don't think we've seen the the last of this.
2: Yeah, and look, yeah, you know, I tried to do some some maths around this stuff to try to spot you know where the losses are. And I mean, of course, right? People just aren't going back to the cinema as quickly as anybody would have hoped. You know, they said that Black Widow did release to 4,200 screens in the US, which counts as a wide release, which was kind of part of her deal. Looking back on it, you know, something like Avengers Endgame went to 4,600 theatres, not just screens. So that probably played on maybe three times as many screens on its opening weekend. Black Widow so far has made $300 million globally in theatres and then that $60 million on premium access. Uh, I pulled up. Ragnarok, because I'm like, okay, you know, Avengers Endgame was like the epic end of the era for all of those kinds of first, you know, first Avengers stars. But something that like Ragnarok probably had a bit more of a relationship. It had like a $122 million opening weekend, and Black Widow had an $80 million opening weekend. But then a week later, Ragnarok had made almost another $100 million, whereas Black Widow had only made about another $50 million. So it's almost that sense of everybody who wanted to go and see it went and went to that opening weekend for the fun of that but most other people if they weren't really keen to go to the cinema full stop which i think plenty of people are just still worried about that space right now then they probably bought the premium access version which means you can watch it multiple times at home for that same 30 bucks whereas there'd be plenty of people who in the usual sense might go and watch a you know a big blockbuster Multiple times at the cinema because it's not going to come out at home for months later.
0: Yeah, I got to say, as a person who spent 15 years reviewing movies, watching the industry now, it's very hard to see how cinemas ever come back from COVID movies have been presented with this alternative in the form of streaming services and premium deals and it's just a little bit too good a deal for cinemas. Like this is my personal take and please by all means tell me if you guys disagree, but I just don't see cinemas, Ariel, ever coming back from from this, you know, these last two years. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's certainly a tough proposition. I mean maybe I don't think cinemas writ large will disappear but maybe the amount of cinemas will reduce. And so there will be still desire to go to the cinema for big releases on that sort of opening day weekend, if you want the full Cinemax, the big screen kind of experience. And certainly for a strong contingent of people, I think p- still want that outing. I mean, once they feel safe enough to do it. So I don't think it's going to go away entirely, but, but maybe there will be, have to be some constriction in the amount of screens on offer.
2: And yeah, I think there's an issue here as well, right? Where if, you know, Disney Plus has been Potentially, you know, the greatest launch of an entertainment service in the history of digital, right? Because the timing couldn't have been better. I mean, it launched before the pandemic, but, you know, it was able to accelerate massively last year. And its access and its ownership of so many of these franchises, you know, the fact that Disney owns basically everything now when it comes to major movies and things, meant so easy for them to make that choice. Whereas, you know, we've still got a Bond film sitting on the shelf now for, you know, a year and a half because they don't have that kind of a direct relationship. They would have to be selling the rights to someone else and negotiating some kind of a deal, hoping that that would be enough. Whereas, you know, for Disney, they know that there's just, it isn't just that $60 million of premium access. They know that there's going to be a whole bunch of people who've also, you know, either resubscribed or subscribed to the first time to get access to that movie. So, you know, there's a lot of layers in this where Disney owns every one of them. Whereas for some of those other players, they're still in that no man's land wondering, okay, how exactly do we make sure we get the returns we need to afford to have made a Bond film?
1: Well, we can also talk another time about the dangers of Disney owning that amount of IP. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. I mean, it does create two classes of media. Well, two, two classes of movie studio, right? I mean, you can see that every single movie studio, anybody that owns any any intellectual property is rushing to create a direct relationship with the consumer. But it is undergoing a massive change and how we watch and how we consume is going to look really different in a couple of years' time. Download the show. It is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and a huge sale this week, uh, Afterpay, Uh, has been bought, Ariel. Who's it been bought by?
1: Square. It is a short little name for a payments company owned by the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey.
0: Why is Jack Dorsey interested in, uh, in Afterpay?
1: Well, Square is quite an interesting product and a kind of interesting side project, I suppose, of Jack Dorsey, who we all think of as the Twitter boss, but he's actually been involved with Square for the past few years too, kind of building out a payment platform and, and the way they kind of sell it is it's very much merchant focused. So you might have somebody at a market stall at a farmer's market selling a uh, Loaves of bread, but they have that little white square you might have seen so they can do tap-and-go payments for anybody that wants it. So kind of uh, helping move technology around payments out into the general public. It's an interesting takeover by Square there because Afterpay, of course, is one of Australia's leading buy-now, uh, buy pay-later platforms, a kind of ecosystem that has really boomed in the past few years where people can typically buy a product online or in a shop get it there and then, but then pay off the price in about four installments over a couple of months. And I think it kind of makes sense. So Square sort of really trumpets its relationship with merchants and retailers and Afterpay does the same. And it's really just another service that Square can offer its merchants. They can offer consumers now the ability to pay up front, of course, but also this ability to pay off over time
0: you could see how integration between the two could potentially work. And it's also worth pointing out, Seamus, that this is an Australian company, Afterpay, and it's one of the very few ones that have managed to kind of break through, I think, on, a, on an international scale. Yeah,
2: and look, it really is, you know, a huge moment for this finance side of the Australian startup world. Yeah, you know, when they're talking about a US $29 billion deal, Square's market cap itself is like $124 billion. Like This is a huge percentage of the value of Square, though we have to make the joke that it's an all-stock deal, which is ultimately the, the true buy-now-pay-later at a corporate scale. So, yeah, <laughs> congratulations to Square on pulling that one off. It's kind of fascinating that Square already actually had things like the banking licences, the rights to kind of do all of this stuff, and some of the tools itself so in some ways you know people have kind of wondered what exactly was square looking for but i think there is something about the fact that after pay was starting to have success in international markets what it needed was a bit more of the kind of scale that square can offer because it was starting to face competition from PayPal itself, uh, which has launched its own by Now Pay Later service. Apple's been looking at the space through its Apple card potentially. So, you know, big competitors out there and Square has kind of built the engine almost for this kind of payment system that operates close to globally at this stage. But it might be that after pay has kind of been proving itself, I think maybe to have better branding, better recognition um, or, you know, just a better kind of pitch into that um, retail space. And in some ways I think Square is kind of happily letting the Square brand itself almost kind of fade into the background compared to its own cash app, which is, you know, an app that is huge in the US now. But look, Ariel said earlier that, you know, this is the side project. I totally think it's the other way around. Twitter is the side project. Square is the thing that Jack Dorsey firmly has his eye on. It is the thing that has made him all the more billions. I think over the last five years, Twitter's market cap growth is about 278% and Square's growth over the past five years is over 2,000%. So, you know, in terms of which company makes him a bigger and bigger billionaire uh it is absolutely square and this is where we're seeing kind of lots of efforts to keep exploring and doing interesting things in this finance market whereas you know twitter launched a payment service here in australia where you i don't even know what you get for paying money each month um so it's you know it's uh, this i think is the the area that he knows is you know the bigger part of his uh, future pay packet
0: it is probably worth pointing out, Ariel, that buy now pay later services are not without some issues.
1: Yeah, totally. I had I had to have a little laugh when I read the press release uh, about this buyout of shares from Jack Dorsey. He he had this sort of statement about the aim of Square is to make the financial system more fair, accessible, and inclusive, and he put afterpay in that bucket as well. I mean. Sure, Uh, but there's certainly a lot of kind of ethical issues around Buy Now, Pay Later services, particularly in their impact on young people. Um, Actually, ASIC, the financial regulator here in Australia, published this report last year around the effects that Buy Now, Pay Later services were having, and it said about one in five of the consumers it looked at in this survey had missed payments in by now pray later products which meant they were probably paying late fees, all kinds of other administration costs and of that one in five about 47% were aged between 18 and 29 and about 40% also already held some small to medium credit card debt. So there is an issue here I think around the targeting of young people I mean maybe that's another reason why Square had its eye on Afterpay. It really does have a big inroad with young consumers and even if they don't have a credit card, it is a new way to get in debt at the end of the day.
0: Indeed. All right. And finally here on Download This Show, should you have the right to repair your technology when something goes horribly wrong? This is part of a, I guess, a manifesto about the right to repair that's under debate at the moment, Ariel.
1: Yeah, the Productivity Commission here in Australia has been looking at this question of the right to repair. I think for the average person, you probably would assume, yes, I have the right to repair my stuff. Like, you know, you certainly, if you break a table, you might give it a go fixing it yourself. You might call in a carpenter to help you, but it gets really complicated when it comes to technology. Of course, you know, say a iPhone, a laptop, these are all quite complex bits of gear And finding the right person to fix it is hard. Uh, And then, of course, there's this issue that has really uh, been playing out over the past few years that a lot of technology companies either specifically say or imply that you might void your warranty if you don't use them or a sort of repair institution that's gotten a tick from the company and you might sort of lose some of your privileges around warranty and other things. And that's not necessarily always legal here in Australia, but it's kicked off this debate about the right to repair here and whether it needs stronger protections for consumers in our consumer law.
0: So what's been proposed as a, I guess, as a change, Seamus? So I guess there is kind of a whole bunch of
2: submissions to the productivity commission inquiry into this whole sort of right of repair. I find it gets kind of really complicated when it comes to, you know, high tolerance technologies like smartphones and things, because it is so easy for someone to make a mistake and, and then how that sort of leads to, you know, the original manufacturer needing to deal with, the classic issue being exploding phones, you know, that a phone catches fire and it turns out it was, uh, you know, a third-party battery replacement or something like that. It's not always that the case, but that has definitely been sort of one of those areas where it becomes an issue. But it also is about the idea that this is about not just tech, it's about cars, and even things like open source 3D printable spare parts, you know, so like there's all these kinds of new areas that I think this is where you're know, reading about sort of some of these recommendations that people have been making into this inquiry does try to point at all these kinds of areas that we should be trying to set the rules around to give people that capacity to say, if, if I want to, you know, do a personal repair on a piece of technology, then I should be able to go and, you know, source a part myself or to have options available rather than having these things stamped out. You know, one of the areas that is an issue is even things like, well, if we're going to allow third parties to do repairs, they need to also have permission to say which brands they can repair but that can often be an area where, you know, companies will say you have no permission to use our brand. So there's so many little kind of layers here as to what exactly the rules need to be to ensure that, that what might be fair or considered within the law on one hand isn't just kind of being stamped out because someone says, well, they can't use our brand in, in anything that they say about tech and therefore you wouldn't even know where to go to find a third-party repairer uh, even if it was legal.
0: Ariel, on some level, this is a little bit of a no-brainer because, I mean, certainly in terms of things like e-waste, the ability to repair technology as opposed to what so many of us do, which is just, like, replace it, you've got to figure that's likely to have a big impact on e-waste.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's another concern the Productivity Commission is looking into and one that's... I think people have an awareness of this. Certainly people are often aware that they can drop off, like, old laptops, old smartphones to council so they can get properly... Recycled. Of course, there are sometimes issues with toxicity in parts of uh, technology that gets thrown away too. But I, I really do think we can't keep consuming our new items at the rate we are and just throwing them away when the battery runs down. We really do need to be looking into a much stronger economy around repair, much stronger uh, guidelines around our rights to repairs and access as well. Because as um, Seamus was alluding to there, sometimes it's really hard to even know where to go uh, to get stuff repaired and to understand, you know, what about your phone could be improved, for example, beyond a fixed to a cracked screen or a new battery? Because there are like a, a lot of tinkering that can take place if you have the right know-how and skills.
0: Seamus, now that we have this Productivity Commission report, how do you think this is all going to play out? I definitely think there'll, you know, there'll be some
2: opening up and, and ensuring that we have some rules in place that try to you know leave the door open for people to get things done if they want to go and find out how to do it you know in a in a secondary market or uh, where it does get complicated will be will we get rules around things like open source libraries of printable parts yeah you know, that's kind of something that sometimes i think can be a bit beyond government planning when it comes to rewriting rules for weird edge cases of internet culture that actually, you know, have real value in this kind of uh, space. But yeah, warranty is going to be a really tricky one because, you know, will they set rules in place that say, okay, you can go and get it repaired in some place, but then if something goes wrong, who is going to be left holding the bag? Will it that third party repairer have to, will they be able to kick the can down the road and say, Oh, actually that wasn't us. That was the original, And do people get left in the middle? So that is where it's going to be really, you know, a real tension there of who exactly is going to be responsible in those cases where
0: something gets repaired, but then something does go wrong. I guess we'll just have to wait and see Seamus Byrne from Biteside. Thank you so much for coming back on Download the Show. Good to be here. And Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.